This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And in today's episode, we have Dinosaur of the Day, Mementiosaurus. We have... News galore. <laughs> yes, a lot of news. And we want to give an especially big thank you to our patrons, Chris, Nicholas, and Kyle and Betsy. Jumping right into the news, because there is a ton of news... We have a couple follow-ups from our discussion about hopping dinosaurs that we had last week, and Brendan sent us a message on Facebook and pointed out that sclermoclus, I think is how you say it, is sometimes depicted as hopping, and weirdly, sclermoclus might actually be a basal pterosaur, meaning just a very early pterosaur before they could fly, I guess. If it did hop, I think it should get the nickname like a demon bunny or something because (laughs) it's really small and it was probably a predator and it definitely had teeth and stuff. It would have been kind of intense and weird hopping around. Lythronax Argestes shared a link on Reddit of an Edmontosaurus from a 2009 paper in Paleontological Electronica, and it also shows a hopping dinosaur. (laughs) But in this case, it's an Edmontosaurus that's doing three different gates, and the authors derived it from computer modeling, like I said, back in 2009. And they had three different possibilities, and I'm going to list them in increasing speed. So the slowest one that they simulated was bipedal running, like a T-Rex in Jurassic Park, for instance. And it was going about 31 miles an hour, 50 kilometers an hour, which is pretty fast. They also did quadrupedal galloping, and that bumped it up five miles an hour up to 36 or 58 kilometers an hour. But then hopping was actually the fastest at 38 miles an hour or 61 kilometers an hour. So pretty weird (laughs) that an Amontosaurus, which is a huge, huge hadrosaur, would be depicted as hopping. And the tracks that we've seen from Edmontosaurus don't match hopping. And the model didn't account for the stresses that hopping would impart on the body. Because you could imagine if you're hopping, it's going to put a lot of stress on the joints that are taking that big impact as you're bounding along. The authors of this simulation think that hopping was actually the least likely of the three. So maybe it did some combination of bipedal running and quadrupedal galloping, depending on what kind of speed and efficiency it was looking to do. So we still don't really know if any dinosaurs hopped, but one might have, 
if it wasn't a pterosaur <laughs> and a montosaurus maybe could have if it could handle all the stresses or maybe something that has a similar kind of body plan to an edmontosaurus but is smaller might be a good candidate for hopping. It's interesting how hopping would be the fastest way. Yeah, yeah, that's really weird to me. I think it's because it's basically like, you know, jumping so you can clear a lot of space on just a single bound as long as your muscles are set up for that kind of thing. Like kangaroos, they go so far in a single stride that you could see how it could be more efficient, at least speed-wise. <laughs> I don't know about energy-wise. We also have a new dinosaur this week, and its name is just so difficult to say. It's I think it's Cruralispenia maltodonta. I think it's more Cruella, like Cruella de Vil. No. Oh, no, that's Cruella. Yeah. Cruel. Yeah, because it, it starts with C-R-U-R-A-L, which is just, it's like rural, but rural. That's what I said the first time <laughs> I was talking about it, and you're like, what is that word? Cruel? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Cruella or cruel. But in any event, it's Latin for Cruralis and penna, which refer to the unique feathers that it has on its legs. And the species name comes from Maltendonta, referring to the numerous teeth that it has. As the name implies, it's got a ton of teeth, especially compared to other early birds, because this really is a bird. It's a dinosaur, obviously, because birds are dinosaurs. And it's from the early Cretaceous, so it's right in there with all these bird-dinosaur transition fossils. But it looks like it was almost certainly capable of flight, so it's really being considered as a bird. It had at least 14 teeth in its lower jaw, and that is a lot for a bird. <laughs> I mean, right now birds have zero, so I guess anything <laughs> seems like a lot of teeth. The fossil also shows feathers over most of the body, and not surprisingly for an older bird, the feathers are not as advanced as modern birds. Some of the feathers are described as wire-like, and they kind of fray at the end, so to me it almost reminds me of like a pom-pom with a stick sticking out of it or something. It's kind of similar to some of the other early feathers we've seen that are a little more downy, at least at the end, but then it's got more of a rigid structure going up to that point. And they describe it as being probably nice for display, and then it would have had the advantage of not slowing the bird down as much while it's flying because it does have that rigid structure on the base, and it's not just purely a fluffy feather that would kind of cause a lot of drag. And that probably made it pretty decent at flying. The fossil was found in northern China in the Huajing Formation, and it's estimated to be about 131 million years old, again from the early Cretaceous. And it's small, even for the group of early birds that it comes from, Enantiorniths that are generally small compared to other early dinosaurs. I should say early bird-dinosaur hybrids. <laughs> and it's in the ballpark of about 10 centimeters or 4 inches long. Again, I was like trying hmm. to estimate that from the little picture, so it's kind of hard to estimate exactly. But that would make it about the size of a modern finch. Fits in your hand. Yeah, it'd be pretty tiny. It's interesting just how small they could get. And, you know, you imagine a bird the size of a finch with like 14 teeth just in its lower jaw. Ugh. It seems like it must have been eating insects or something. I can't imagine what it could be hunting if it's that small. But I don't know. It's got teeth. <laughs> yeah. 
maybe it could be hunting its peers, I guess. <laughs> Other birds or maybe little tiny mammals or something, lizards. Or scavenging. Yeah, like a little mini vulture. <laughs> Ooh. Next up, Dwayne Nash has posted another interesting article on his blog, Antediluvian Salad. And it goes into the question of why animals grow beaks and then whether or not we can learn anything about dinosaur lips from the possible selective pressure between lips versus beaks, basically. So it seems like more people are really starting to come around to the idea that theropods really needed lips to cover their massive teeth and kind of keep them healthy as we've discussed how saliva in the mouth really keeps teeth in this constant state of repair. If your teeth are hanging out of your mouth, it's really not good. You know, you'll get cavities, the teeth decay much faster than they would if they were in a mouth with saliva. So even things like saber-toothed tiger probably had some big jowly lips covering the Do you think teeth. it ever accidentally bit its lips? Yeah, that's actually one of the things that Dwayne Nash talks about in this. And depending on the type of lips you portray them as having, that is a pretty big concern. So he came up with a type of lip that he thinks wouldn't get bitten accidentally. But I mean, I bite my lip accidentally. One of the nice things about lips is they heal relatively quickly. So, And our teeth aren't even that sharp. Hey, I caught it with a canine today. Mm. Those are pretty sharp. Just thinking of a saber-toothed tooth. Yeah, or like T-Rex teeth were actually serrated where ours aren't. Yeah. So that's kind of another story. <laughs> so going into the, his different types of lips that he goes through in the article, he talks about in Saurian, the T-Rex in the art shows kind of a tooth pocket. And I hadn't noticed that until he pointed it out. But looking at the picture, it's like the upper teeth kind of fit into a sort of lip sheath that the bottom teeth are surrounded by because they kind of have, I guess, like an overbite. The upper teeth go around the lower teeth. I think that's how we do too, right? Yeah, that's how humans, I think, are supposed to have it because an underbite looks unnatural, so it must generally go that way. <laughs> so anyway, the problem with that tooth pocket, as he was calling it, is it looks like it might actually get bitten kind of often because you could imagine if something pressed on the side of your head a little bit or, you know, you're just biting quickly, that tooth pocket might flex in a little bit and then you could chomp down on it. That could be a problem. So it would have to either be really rigid or have some kind of muscles in order to maintain that shape. And it doesn't seem too likely that it would have had a lot of muscles there because we don't see the kind of blood supply that you would expect to see to have big strong lips around <laughs> the mouth yeah big strong lips sounds funny yeah but you know with all that mouth you need pretty big lips <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and all those teeth the next option is having lizard lips and <laughs> that sounds like big strong lips no, actually, so lizard lips, they're, I guess they're strong, but they're completely different than what I think of as lips. Oh, they're kind of flappy. No, not at all. No. They're super rigid. So back when we had our gecko little foot, I don't know if you remember Sabrina, but it basically has scales that go right up over the edge of its mouth, basically. So the scales kind of line the bottom and the top where you'd expect lips to be, mm. and they make a kind of hard, scaly, 
what interface, I guess, between the bottom of the upper mouth and the top of the jaw so that they kind of seal, but they're actually scales that are contacting. And you see it in iguanas too and other lizards. So they Chameleons. Call, yeah, chameleons probably have them too. And so they, they call those lizard lips and they're kind of, <laughs> they're not really lips because it's basically just this, you know, the same scales that are all over their head go all the way down right up until that very end. But since they have such small teeth, they don't really need these bigger lips to kind of seal more completely. It's an interesting in between. And there's a potential that dinosaurs might have had that kind of lip too. The other type that Nash didn't talk about as much is mammalian lips. And the big benefit for mammalian lips that we all have, if you're listening to the podcast, is that they allow for suckling, which is something that almost all mammals do. And it's obviously super important because if you've ever been around a baby, you know that they like instantly suck on everything all the time. It's one of the most natural instincts that mammals have because right when you're born, that's how you get your food. So you have to have strong lips. They have to be able to make a seal and yeah. So that's important. They also allow for better communication. Like, like right podcasting. Now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it would be hard to say, you know, the tens of thousands of words or whatever's in the English language if you don't have lips because... Our language would probably be different. Yeah. And you can even do other sorts of things with your lips to communicate. Like you can make different gestures with your lips. You can mouth sounds to people without actually vocalizing. Whistling. Yeah, you can whistle too. That's true. I can't, but you can. Yes. You definitely couldn't whistle without lips. That's a good point. Well, I guess some people do it with kind of fingers. So maybe, but anyway, <laughs> they've also become a sort of display structure like Angelina Jolie or somebody, you know, people get like the collagen injections because having big lips is seen as a good thing to have, especially oh if you're God, female. I love Lucy. She used to paint her lips to look a little bit bigger. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Lipstick in general, you kind of do that or lip liner. And then the other option, <laughs> if you don't have mammalian lips, lizard lips, or a tooth pocket. That's quite the number of options. Yeah. But there's another one. And this is the one that Nash supports. And that's basically having jowls like a St. Bernard. And that's also what Virginia Naples thinks that Smilodon also had big jowly things hanging over the teeth. And unlike the other types of lips, they Sounds actually like kind a lot of saliva. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. And aside from like the saliva getting everywhere, the lips themselves kind of get in the way just in like regular day to day kind of behavior, especially if you're trying to get at some small item. So if you're chewing on a large animal, it doesn't really matter if you have big lips, but if you're trying to hunt something small, there's an idea that the lips might be getting in the way. Or if you're trying to eat, say, like seeds and you've got these big droopy lips, it could be difficult. So Nash uses that as a hypothesis that dinosaurs evolved these lips originally to protect the teeth, but then as they wanted to eat more herbivorous diets, he was saying particularly because they might want to get some of these nutrients that allow them to make brighter colors on their body, that they would evolve beaks because their big lips are getting in the way of eating plants. And therefore, you go from big lips to beaks. So it's pretty speculative, 
but I do agree with him that it seems like the big jowly lips seem like the most likely. This was uh, this week's rabbit hole, I think. It, yeah. I sent Garrett down this one. Yeah. I usually <laughs> don't go into these uh, blog posts because I end up having to read all of the source material before I can get my own opinion on it. But I thought it was interesting, so I pushed for it. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, it is interesting trying to think about what kind of lips a dinosaur would have, because they probably had to have some kind of lips. I know it's it's popular to look at dinosaurs as not having lips, because then those big teeth are always on display, even when their mouth is closed. But you just don't see that with animals. Very few people think that they had the kind of alligator lack of lips. They think it's probably one of these four options and not really mammalian lips because like i said it didn't seem like they had the musculature there to support big lips that'd be weird too if a t-rex had like big humanoid lips be super creepy (laughs) so yes yeah and then some of the other benefits to, to just lips in general is they give you additional sensitivity when you're manipulating the environment so if you think about a dog that's messing around with like a chew toy or something, the lips kind of give you a feeling of where the toy is or where the thing that you're biting onto is. Kind of like whiskers, a similar sort of thing. And they also help a lot when you're eating because they can help kind of keep the food in your mouth and they help you, you know, sense exactly where the food is or the prey is depending on what's going on. And then, of course, they keep the saliva in your mouth to help protect the teeth. Although if you have the jowls, a lot of the saliva is probably kind of leaking out, but Ooh. still better than nothing. Ooh, just a mylodon with just dripping. That's, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's not so bad. It's better than cavities. They didn't have toothpaste. That's true. On a totally different news item... <laughs> Nebraska has a new program to help preserve fossils as more roads are developed. This is according to 1011 Now. So the program is called Highway Salvage Paleontology, and it allows two full-time paleontologists to watch over road projects to help save fossils that may be destroyed or paved over. And that sounds awesome because we hear a lot about uh, different fossils that were discovered during construction in different areas and in many cases part of those fossils were destroyed because no one had any idea that they were there yeah yeah it's always important to keep track of where fossils might be so that you can avoid damaging them yeah so hopefully this program is successful and then maybe it'll inspire other places to have similar programs yeah speaking of finding dinosaur fossils The Lo Hueco site in Spain has yielded a lot of really great titanosaur osteoderms. And just as a reminder, osteoderms are structures like the big armor that you see on the back of an ankylosaur. There are minute differences between the titanosaur and the ankylosaur versions. But about 30% of the titanosaur osteoderms are largely hollow. And there have been a lot of hypotheses for why they kind of hollowed out. And we've talked about a couple of them before. One of the ideas is that they might have gotten infected and then, you know, that bacteria would have kind of slowly eaten away at the osteoderm. But one of the more popular ideas is that 
they may have been used as calcium or other mineral reserves for the body, kind of like fat in a camel hump. <laughs> you know, if you're going a long time without food, that can help. A similar kind of thing goes on with dinosaurs, especially because they laid eggs. So if it's been a while since you ate a good mineral nutrient-rich meal, but you have to lay some eggs, what you might be able to do is draw a little bit of those minerals out of your osteoderms to kind of supplement your diet without having to actually eat the minerals. So the researchers looked at these hollowed out osteoderms under some really detailed images. And what they found was that there are these channels in the osteoderms that lead in a particular pattern that makes it look like the dinosaur might have been absorbing the minerals to make calcium in the eggs. It didn't have a pattern that you'd expect to see in something like an infection. It had more like a structured shape back towards the body. Interesting. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about this too with the medullary bone in dinosaurs like T-Rex, which is kind of the same sort of thing on a leg or another bone in the body where they would kind of add a little bit of calcium and minerals to bones just in their skeleton. And then when they were laying an egg, they would use up some of that so they could kind of buffer back and forth within their skeleton. So basically, they might have been able to do the same thing with osteoderms. And then the researchers also looked at the hypothesis that osteoderms were hollow because of pneumaticity. And that, again, is kind of that hollow bone, bird bone thing that both allows for more space for the air sacs, for better breathing within dinosaurs in some cases, and then in other cases just makes bones lighter, which is useful when you start weighing thousands and thousands of pounds. <laughs> but when they looked at that, they couldn't see any reason why pneumaticity would make any sense. But when they tried to look at whether or not maybe the dinosaurs were just under some kind of stress, like they hadn't been able to eat for a long time, or something was going on in their environment that was causing them to, you know, use up some of their mineral stores. Uh, they couldn't really tell if maybe that was the issue that was causing them to use up the minerals, or if it was caused by trying to supplement the diet for making eggs or something similar. I wonder if anyone will be able to figure it out eventually. Yeah. Eventually, if you could figure out, oh, this osteoderm came from a female ankylosaur or from a female titanosaur, then you could kind of look for comparisons there versus the males. But that's, that's hard. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. Just one good find away. Could be. Next, Times Live reported on an 11-year-old boy who found a dinosaur tooth. So Ben Ingle found the tooth in Kinza, South Africa, where he was walking near a small cave. And he found the tooth, and everyone in his family, except for his grandfather, thought that it was just a piece of plastic. His grandfather then asked his friends, who were geologists, to take a look, and they sent photos to a paleontologist. And Jonah Chouanier from Witts University thinks that it's 140 million years old and is the tooth of some kind of large theropod. So there's hope that they might find more bones. And they're thinking this theropod might weigh somewhere between 500 kilograms to one ton. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call that a large theropod. I mean, it's obviously large compared to modern animals. But when you're talking T-Rexes in the thousands and thousands of kilograms i don't know large for south africa yeah and probably for 140 million years ago i suppose i wonder what 
it looks like though. People thought it looked like plastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's weird. Because I've never seen a fossil that made me think plastic. Yeah. That's pretty strange. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Next up, we have a question from one of our younger listeners named Sean. I really like that video. Thanks, Sean, and Sean's dad for sending it to us. So as a quick answer, Brachiosaurus and its relatives evolved into Titanosaurs, like Arlo from The Good Dinosaur, but unfortunately they did all go extinct with T-Rex and the other big non-bird dinosaurs about 66 million years ago. So they didn't turn into giraffes, but... But there is a giraffe of titans, I could see. Yeah. How that question comes up. That's true. And giraffes and humans both evolved from a different group of animals called synapsids. And one of the earliest known synapsids is Dimetrodon. And a lot of people think that looks kind of like a dinosaur because it's scaly and it's sprawled out and it's got a big sail on its back. So it looks kind of unusual and it's obviously super old. So giraffes evolved from something that looks kind of like a dinosaur, as did humans. And the reason that dinosaurs like Brachiosaurus and giraffes look so similar is because of something called convergent evolution. And basically all that means is that they both had pressures so that they evolved in similar ways. So Brachiosaurus 
and giraffes both had reasons to grow longer necks so that they could take better advantage of the environment. So giraffes reaching higher leaves and trees or Brachiosaurus being able to reach a bunch of leaves at once or balancing its long tail or it's kind of actually hard to tell why Brachiosaurus had such a long neck. And even with giraffes, some people say that it has a long neck just because it impressed other giraffes. So <laughs> it's kind of difficult to tell what made them want long necks. But in both cases, there was something about having a long neck that was really appealing. You and can reach everything. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would think. It's pretty cool. I mean, who wouldn't want like a 40 foot long neck? <laughs> <laughs> so it's really interesting how different animals that can be so unrelated can end up looking really similar. And it, it's actually one of the things that makes paleontology so difficult because animals that are unrelated can end up looking pretty similar. And then it makes it really confusing when you're trying to group them together based just on bones. Long story short, giraffes not related to Brachiosaurus, at least any more than we are. Thank you, Sean, for your awesome question. And thank you to Sean's dad, Mr. Tanagaki, for sending us that video. Yeah. Next up, a team in China's Zhejiang province have found 82 fossil sites and 25 types of eggs, and at least eight dinosaur species, according to Daily Star and Xinhua Net. So scientists from the Zhejiang Institute of Hydrogeology and Engineering Geology and the Zhejiang Museum of Natural History found it in an excavation between 2006 and 2013, and the sites were covered by volcanic rocks. There's not too much to report yet, but it sounds pretty cool. 25 types of eggs is crazy. That just seems like we only know about, like, what, 40 types of dinosaur eggs? We really don't know that many. I wonder how many of those are ones we've already seen versus new ones. That'll be really cool. Yeah. I wonder if it's 25 types of eggs or 25 eggs. I don't know. If it's 82 sites, it could oh, be that's 25 true. types. It's a lot of, that's a lot of material. Next up, there's a relatively new YouTube channel by the Association for Materials and Methods in Paleontology, also known as AMP. <laughs> <laughs> there's two M's. They have lots of videos explaining best practices for materials and methods in paleontology. And the organization also has an annual meeting that's coming up in April in Texas. I watched one of the videos. It's very, very thorough, but I think it's probably a good idea to get informed if you're planning on doing any preparation or say you find a little tooth or something in the wild and you want to prepare it because... You can actually damage the fossil if you over-prepare it, they call it, or if you put different glues or things on them, you can make it difficult to use later or examine later. So it's worth it if you find a fossil or you're planning on doing some preparation to watch a couple of these videos and kind of learn some of the basics of fossil prep. And they also alluded to a program that they do teaching people how to prepare fossils but I'm not really sure how all that works. See if they put out some new videos soon. Yeah, that's true, because it's a pretty new page. Next, Inverse published a really great article about Bolor Minjin, who's the founder of the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs. And we, I think we talk about this institute a fair amount, comes up. Yeah, we interviewed her many months ago now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so... Bolor grew up in Mongolia, and her father was a paleontologist who worked in the Gobi Desert. 
and she became a paleontologist, and now she plans on building a dinosaur museum in the Gobi Desert. So the American Museum of Natural History donated a bus to her, which she talked about in the interview, and she uses that as a mobile dinosaur museum. Her goal is to have an institution in seven Mongolian regions, and at the very least, the plan is to create repositories to store fossils. So a lot of dinosaur bones have been smuggled out of Mongolia. There's a lot of poachers who end up destroying the fossils. Uh, they bash the bone to remove the claws, teeth, and skulls because those are seen as more valuable. Uh, that's a shame. It is. In 2007, Bohr founded the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs, and she's been involved in repatriation of stolen Mongolian fossils since. She found out about a Tarbosaurus batar skeleton that was going to auction in New York City and then reported it to the government. And the dinosaurs sold for over a million dollars, but the transaction didn't go through. And then the seller, Eric Prokopi, pled guilty to stealing the bones and went to jail. And then that Tarbosaurus eventually was sent back to Mongolia. So that Tarbosaurus, when it went back to Mongolia, got the nickname Mongol Batar, Mongolian hero. And three million people came to see it when it was on display at the Capitol. That's awesome. It is. So the Mongolian government said that they commissioned the first dinosaur museum in Mongolia and Bolor became the chief paleontologist. She then left to work on the institute and help repatriate more Mongolian dinosaurs to go to the new museum. So now over 30 specimens have come back, including Nick Cage's Tarbosaurus skull. We've talked about that a few times. However, there's still a lot more work to be done, including finding paleontologists, fossil preparers, and museum curators. Yeah, this the issue is kind of complicated and unpleasant because for a long time, none of these countries were enforcing their dinosaur laws. So a lot of the world didn't even really know that it was illegal to collect this type of dinosaur. And if you see it at a reputable auction house, you kind of assume that, you know, if you're paying a million dollars for it, it's a legitimate fossil that yeah. you have every right to get. But it turns out the auction houses don't look into that. Yeah, they don't really have much of an incentive to do that. And even on the preparator side, so that guy that was in Florida who prepared the skeleton, he spent years preparing it. And if no one else was willing to do it, there's kind of an argument for, you know, he might have added something to the community. And it's complicated. It's unpleasant that people get caught in the middle. But now that everybody is very aware <laughs> that you can't be exporting fossils from Mongolia and China and certain other parts of the world, it seems like things are getting a little bit better. Things are getting repatriated. And really, nobody has an excuse anymore to sell these things. Hopefully, auction houses will pay attention and stop selling stuff that's obviously from <laughs> parts of the world. Because Tarbosaurus is only from Mongolia. So if you're selling a Tarbosaurus, it's illegal to sell it. There's, there's no scenario where an auction house should be selling these things. So hopefully, we see this cut down soon. Yeah. And hopefully, that museum in Mongolia is built. Yeah. That'd be really nice. Next, the bitter Southerner wrote this really great day in the life of Appalachia in the Cretaceous. So it starts off in the morning, 90 million years ago. The water's warm and full of large marine animals, including a pair of mating Tylosaurus. Then a pteranodon dives into the water and picks up a fish and flies away. And then you move on to a rainforest and there you see a laporothon, which is a hadrosaur eating vegetation. There's also the hadrosauroids Klausaurus and Hypsibema. 
Then an ornithomimosaur walks out of the forest and squats in mud to relieve himself of his lice, which draws attention to himself. And two tyrannosaurs come after the ornithomimosaur, but they don't catch it. So then these tyrannosaurs, which are Appalachosaurus, they get ready to fight each other. They weren't hunting together. Turns out the larger, older one had followed the smaller one because he had trespassed. Hmm. And then the younger one runs away. They end up in a fight, but they both end up injured. The story ends with a brief explanation of what's been found in Appalachia so far and how there's still so much to learn. And I just gave an overview, so I'm not doing it justice. It's definitely worth a read, especially if you like realistic dinosaur fiction, stuff like like Bob Bakker's Raptor Red. It's kind of that style, but covers a lot of different dinosaurs and their viewpoints. Nice. Yeah, it's really well done. Next, CVS News shared stories about Barnum Brown to commemorate his 144th birthday. So Brown collected fossils when he was a kid. And then, as we all probably know, he worked at the American Museum of Natural History. And in 1902, Brown, who apparently was known as Mr. Bones, <laughs> thought that was funny. Hmm. He also sometimes wore fur coats on expeditions. So that's how you know he's classy. And he found a partial T-Rex skeleton in Hell Creek, Montana. He also found a more complete skeleton, which was put on display in New York in 1906. Brown also designed the dinosaur models, including T-Rex, for the Sinclair Oil Exhibit at the 1964 New York World's Fair. Unfortunately, though, he died on February 5th, 1963, before the fair opened. He was 89 years old, so it's a pretty good long life, and he got to find a lot of dinosaurs. And his exhibit attracted a lot of large crowds, so that's also nice. Yeah. Next, Paleo Illustration has this short, about 10-second long video of an Alaskan Trodon. The artist is Julio Lacerda, who made a beautiful Trodon covered in feathers, and it's hanging out in the snow. And, I mean, it's not doing much. It's just 10 seconds, but it's really well done. And it looks pretty realistic, I think. Next, a man in Calgary, Canada, is dressed up as a dinosaur to dance for his sick wife. This is according to Calgary Sun. It's a very sweet story. So the wife, Brittany, she's only 27. She has this severe condition called Chiari malformation, which causes the brain to swell and grow into the spinal canal. Oh, no. And it's really painful and damages nerves and muscles. It's a sweet and also sad story. So according to her husband, Daniel, she can only move 15 minutes before she is in too much pain. And her condition is too advanced for surgery that can save her. Daniel can't work full-time because he takes care of his wife and his son, so he does a lot of odd jobs, and to earn more money to buy medical cannabis oil, which helps his wife with her pain, as well as he wants to save up for a power chair for her in a medical bed, he started to dance in downtown Calgary in an inflatable <laughs> dinosaur costume. And he's gotten some help. I think on his first day, they said he met a young girl who had the same condition as his wife and was a survivor of the surgery. So that was kind of nice. Yeah. I don't know what kind of dances he does, but... Everybody loves a dancing dinosaur, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Next, NME reported on Hevisaurus, which is a Finnish heavy metal dinosaur band. So there's five members who they say that they're seven-year-old dinosaurs. They hatched in 2010 from 65 million-year-old eggs buried deep in a mountain. That doesn't make any sense, by the way. It's just for fun. I mean, they <laughs> if you look at them, they don't look like real dinosaurs either. I know. So they started playing heavy metal right away. 
They're popular with children in Finland. They've sold about 170,000 albums. And they look a little bit like the puppets in the TV show Dinosaurs, except that they all have crazy hair. So one has a mohawk. Three of them have really long hair. There's a music video I watched, and I think it shows their origin story. I don't know any Finnish, so just based on what it looks like. They're walking out of a mountain, and then they're playing music in front of a large crowd of children. They also breathe fire at one point. It's all very epic. So they, they play heavy metal, but they're a children's band? Yeah. What goes on in Finland? <laughs> And in the video, there's a large crowd of children who are rocking out to their music. That is, man, Finland. <laughs> I don't understand. Because here it's like the child music is very, you know, friendly and there's like a little keyboard playing or something. Maybe it's because they're dinosaurs. I guess. I don't know. If you're familiar with this band, let us know. Or if you're in Finland, tell us why the children listen to heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> Next in... Michigan, there was this thing called a breakfast beer PJ party at Clubhouse BFD. So apparently adults and kids wore their pajamas and some people dressed up in dinosaur pajamas and then they ate breakfasts and drank brews. And it sounds like a really awesome way to brunch. <laughs> dinosaur pajama brunch. Yeah. All the best things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're comfy. You're eating. You're drinking. What more do you want? I can think of things, yeah. but... But for brunch? <laughs> I guess. There's a story going around about Chicago restaurateur Nick Kokanis who pranked open table with dinosaurs. This is according to Eater. So Kokanis has this reservation company called Talk, and it got a cease and desist letter from open table. And earlier in the year, he had bought a domain name called opentablesaurus.com. <laughs> which he planned to link to the talk homepage and print the URL on thousands of plastic dinosaurs and then give those away at a National Restaurant Association show. His explanation for this was, everyone loves dinos, right? And then the URL was going to show, quote, a big animated brontosaurus lumbering about the page that says open table on it. And then the meteor will drop from the blue sky, obliterate the dinos, and boom, you get redirected to a talk page showing the future of restaurant reservations software. <laughs> he also bought a large inflatable dinosaur to be put outside the convention center. However, his plans didn't quite work out. He got the cease and desist letter. So now he's going to donate the dinosaurs to charity, the plastic ones, and give Open Table the URL. The cease and desist letter was apparently about the trademark. Yeah. That's a weird marketing campaign. I guess it, he's trying to make Open Table look like a Old irrelevant and, dinosaur, and then yeah, weird. It is considering what Open Table is. Yeah, it's what like four years old. <laughs> I think we're stretching the dinosaur name a little bit there. Yeah. Next, we've got another cat looking like a dinosaur. Geekology posted a video, and this time it's a cat in a dinosaur costume hatching from an egg. So there's, it's a large paper mache egg, and then the cat that pops out is in a stegosaurus costume. The cat doesn't seem too happy to be a dinosaur, but I found it enjoyable to watch. It's kind of funny because when Sabrina showed this to me, I was like, what is... What's going on with this egg? It's like, is this another crocheted dinosaur egg thing or what is this? Nope, and then like the, it's so tentative. Like anytime I've put a costume on a pet 
it has immediately tried to rip the thing off. <laughs> but apparently this cat was sedate enough that whoever was filming managed to put the cat in the costume, put it inside an egg, put the lid of the egg on it, step back, start recording, and then the cat just like ever so slowly like pokes off the top of the egg, yep. slowly walks out. It's like looking around and then it bolts. Well, it kind of laid down for a second. Yeah. Like it was trying to roll out of the costume or something and then yeah. it bolted. Yeah. There's no, like I couldn't even get a cat into that egg without a costume and like seal it in. I feel like it would panic and jump out, but. Maybe it got lots of treats. Yeah. Oh yeah, it could be. Lured it into the egg. Yeah, with some catnip or something. <laughs> yeah, that's smart. Tips on making cat videos. <laughs> I have no idea. We don't own a cat. That's true. <laughs> Next up, uh, apparently Kong Skull Island isn't going to have any dinosaurs. Boo. Yeah, it's pretty disappointing. The director recently said that the first mandate for me was no dinosaurs. And that's just really lame. Mm -hmm. He says it's because, quote, Jurassic World owns that as far as I'm concerned. And Peter Jackson's version did such a great job with that V-Rex fight. That just quote. sounds like he doesn't want the work or something. Yeah, he doesn't want to be compared. Yeah. Yeah. So instead, it's going to have monsters that drew inspiration from Princess Mononoke, which is a Miyazaki movie with giant wolves and yaks, it looks like. Miyazaki is the guy who made Spirited Away and some of those. Howl's Moving Castle, Totoro. Yeah, I don't like any of them. I love all of them. And I like dinosaurs a lot. So this is pretty disappointing that that's the direction they're taking. He also said that he drew inspiration from Pokemon, which, I mean, does that, <laughs> I, I mean. There's some dinosaur Pokemon, right? Yeah. And I like Pokemon. I enjoy Pokemon Go. But what... Did he see King Kong? I mean, there's nothing Pokemon like. It's supposed to be this big island of like giant prehistoric animals, and we're going Pokemon and yaks and wolves. Not yaks and wolves, just the the style. It could still be pretty impressive looking. I think it's yaks and wolves. He specifically named that one Miyazaki movie, and as far as I can tell, all it has is giant yaks and wolves. Hmm. But if it's Pokemon, I expect them to look kind of cute. Yeah, they kind of showed some of the monsters in the trailer, and I was just hoping, because they were also sitting on a Triceratops skull with a gun at one point, and I was thinking, oh, maybe there's just a, a dinosaur off camera somewhere that they didn't have in the trailer, but apparently not. So I guess we're going to skip the midnight showing of Kong Skull Island and save our money for another day. Maybe we'll buy the DVD version of that My Pet Dinosaur and watch that instead. <laughs> oh, goodness. Speaking of Jurassic World, there's a bit more update here. So Jurassic World 2 may cover the issue of dinosaur rights, according to MovieWeb. The reason people think this is because Universal purchased two domain names recently, IslaNubarRescueMission.com and AllCreaturesHaveRights.com and .org. All Creatures Have Rights seems a lot more telling than Isla Nublar Rescue, because that seems like you could just be rescuing someone from there. But, but when you combine the two. Yeah. So Colin Trevorrow had said that Jurassic World 2 would have to do with animal rights. He said, quote, the dinosaurs will be a parable of the treatment animals receive today. The abuse, medical experimentation, pets, having wild animals in zoos like prisons, the use the military has made of them, animals as weapons. So 
that makes it seem like there might be a rescue mission to save the dinosaurs. This sounds like a dark, like Sundance PETA kind of <laughs> movie. That'd be kind of interesting. Well, it's going to be dark. It's like fast food ink, but with dinosaurs. It's definitely going to be dark <laughs> considering the director. Yeah, that's true. I'm excited. I'm really excited for that one. See the midnight showing of that one? Yes. We'll be there. <laughs> or like the 6 p.m. showing like it was last time. Like pre-midnight nice. showing. <laughs> Thursday night before, yeah. Thursday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Mementosaurus, which was a request from Cole via Patreon and also a request from Dinosaur4602 on YouTube. So thank you. It was a sauropod with a really long neck. It made up about half its body length. Speaking of animals with long necks from yeah. earlier, with True. Sean's question, it lived in the Jurassic in what is now China. There's multiple species, and the largest one is estimated to be about 115 feet or 35 meters long and weighing between 50 and 75 tons. The type species is Mementosaurus constructus. It was around 43 to 49 feet or 13 to 15 meters long. Tiny. <laughs> yeah. It was discovered in 1952 on a construction site in Sichuan, China. They found a partial skeleton, and it was named in 1954 by C.C. Young. The type specimen includes an incomplete neck with 14 vertebrae. The name means Mamenchi lizard, and Mamenchi in Chinese means horse, gate, stream, or brook. That's a lot of different things. Yes. <laughs> it was supposed to be named after the place it was found, which was a construction site next to the Mamingxi Ferry Crossing in the Sichuan province in China. But Young accidentally mixed up the location name and Mamingxi, which means horse neighing brook, was mistaken as Mamenxi, which is horse gate brook. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and the species named Constructus because the fossil was found in a construction site. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> There's a book called The Chronicles of Hua Yang written in the Jin Dynasty between 265 to 317 CE that describes the finding of dragon bones in what is now the Sichuan province. And there's been a lot of Jurassic fossils, including Mementosaurus bones that have been found there. So Mementosaurus may have contributed to folklore about dragons. And as a side note, people used to believe that dragon bones had medicinal qualities. Well, I wonder if they were grinding up dinosaur bones and like eating them. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> the second species of Mementosaurus is Mementosaurus 
Hotronensis, and that was described in 1972. It's estimated to be about 72 feet or 22 meters long, and its neck was 31 feet or 9.3 meters long. Now we're getting there. And it had a complete neck preserved with 19 vertebrae. Another Mementosaurus hotronensis specimen was found in 2001, and it had a club tail, which it probably used for defense. Other sauropods with club tails were Amaeosaurus and Shunosaurus. I think if I had known about those when I was a kid, that might be my favorite dinosaur over an ankylosaur. Just a larger version of ankylosaur. Yeah. And imagine the amount of inertia you can get behind that huge whip tail with a club on it. That would just be so cool. I wonder if any of them had osteoderms too. Yeah. Well, some titanosaurs had osteoderms like we were talking about. So So it really is just a bigger version. Just a huge ankylosaur. It's so cool. Another species of Mementosaurus is Mementosaurus sinocanadorum, which was described in 1993, and scientists found skull material and the first four cervical vertebrae. It had the longest cervical rib of any described sauropod at 13 and a half feet or 4.1 meters long. It's also the longest species in general of Mementosaurus, estimated at 115 feet or 35 meters long, with a neck that's 56 feet or 17 meters long. Yeah, I could see though, if you're only basing it on skull material and a vertebrae, Mm -hmm. it's like that's a pretty difficult couple bones to use to estimate length. You know, it's kind of like how they like to see a femur to estimate the the weight. weight. Yeah. Yeah. You you want more than just one vertebrae and some skull, but... But it's yeah. better than no vertebrae. Yeah, that's true. And if you're convinced that they're close relatives, you might be able to scale it and have some reasonable confidence. Yeah. Can't imagine that neck length. <laughs> yeah, that's out of control. <laughs> There's also a species called Mementosaurus annuensis that was named in 1996 and that was about 69 feet or 21 meters long and mementosaurus jingenensis which was named in 1998 and that was about 66 to 85 feet or 20 to 26 meters long and their last was mementosaurus young eye which was named in 1996 though it was originally found in 1989 and that's named in honor of young it was 52 feet or 16 meters long with a 21 foot or six and a half meter long neck. So weird that one of them is like twice as big as all the other ones too. Yeah. So Mementosaurus young eyes vertebrae above its hips were fused together in a V shape. So it may have had to hold its tail up at a 20 degree angle. Huh. There's one study from 2013 that found that Mementosaurus young eye may have eaten low vegetation based on the stiffness of its vertebrae. It had a pretty straight neck posture, and so it was a low browser. One Mementosaurus found had an injured tail, probably due to a broken and rehealed backbone injury or infection that caused ossified tissue to build up. The long neck of Mementosaurus means that it could eat a lot of food from the same spot because of its reach. And Mementosaurus had spatula-shaped teeth, which were good for eating large bunches of leaves. You can see an animatronic Mementosaurus in Prague at the Harfa Dino Park. Yeah, we missed that while we were in Prague. Next time. Or another reason to go back. Yeah, Prague is wonderful. So Mementosaurus is part of the family Mementosauridae, and that's in the sauropod group. And this family was named in 1972 by Young and Zhao in a paper about Mementosaurus. And other dinosaurs in this group include Chuanjisaurus, Tianshanosaurus, Omeosaurus, and Tonganosaurus. 
Yeah, pretty cool group. Mm-hmm. I like them. And for our fun fact, I snagged it from a discussion on Reddit that was started by Jimmy L. 2014. I added a lot to it because you know how I like a good rabbit hole. But <laughs> the question was originally like, could dinosaurs swim on a lake like we see birds kind of paddling around? And basically everybody said yes. And it's completely feasible that these Mesozoic, even non-avian dinosaurs could scoot around the lake like a duck. (laughs) And there are a few good reasons. So first of all, many dinosaurs would have been nice and buoyant given their high pneumaticity. You know, we were talking about hollow bones and things earlier. And then the less weight you have, the better you float. On top of that, we also have some good evidence for dinosaur swimming, including stegosaur transitional prints, where it looks like they're kind of walking down a ramp into the water and starting to swim, and some other potentially aquatic adaptations like webbed feet and using a tail for locomotion are pretty likely, especially in dinosaurs like Spinosaurus, that seem to have teeth that would have been good for eating fish. And we've also found fish skeletons and fossils in the stomachs of dinosaurs. So we know that they were at least sticking their heads in the water. And if they're going to stick their head in the water, why not just scoot around the surface of the lake while you're looking for a fish? (laughs) Of course. And then one of the less important, although I was before reading some of this discussion, was thinking that the fact that they had feathers might have been one of the more helpful adaptations. But... They pointed out that that doesn't really make a big difference with scooting around the surface of a lake. And really, it's helpful if you're a flying animal to stay mostly out of the water like a duck does so you can fly away quickly. But it's not really necessary. You know, you you could do all of these things without feathers as well. Even though you could do it without feathers, I like to think of the feathered dinosaurs doing it. As soon as I read this, I started thinking about Euteranus kind of scooting around the surface of the lake like a giant you know if you're not familiar it's like a feathered tyrannosaur (laughs) and ducking its head underwater and pulling out like huge fish seems like a really cool thing (laughs) and that wraps up this episode of i know dino thanks again and until next time One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.